follow me along today. Let's just all look up and don't try to follow me in the book. Um, this is the victory finish part one. We are only going to cover one word today. Off to a great start, aren't we? One word. Now, it's actually three words in the English, but in the Greek, it's one word. But, oh, is it an important word. Tetelestai. Do you know what it means? It is finished. Oh, just gave me goosebumps. All right, open up to John 19. And we'll be covering just the first part of verse 30. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time, okay? Father God, we come into your presence this morning in the name of your Son, that matchless name of Jesus. Thank you, Father, that he fulfilled all that was written of him in the prophets, that after a life lived in perfect obedience to your will, all the way to the humble death of the cross, he could triumphantly cry out, It is finished. And as this morning, as we consider that victory cry, we ask that your spirit would move upon us and help us to recall anything that yet sits unconfessed between ourselves and you and therefore interrupts our fellowship with you or prevents your spirit from having complete liberty in our spirits. We want to receive everything that you have for us in your word. We thank you for that direct access that we do have to you that we have been taken beyond the veil into your very presence. Not because of our righteousness, but because of your son's righteousness given freely to us. We ask that you would give each of us a great assurance of this truth. And if there is someone here who lacks this kind of confidence and has no sense of your favor in their lives, we ask that you would either save them, Father, today, or give them greater understanding of the truth of your word so that they will have confidence. And we pray today that our message and our time together would honor your son by word and every thought in our minds, that everything would point to him, magnify him, dismiss from our minds all the things of the week and its trials and troubles and heartaches and its distractions in all of our responsibilities, dismiss those things for this next hour so that we might be filled with Jesus and worship him and that the things of earth would grow strangely dim. May having been here this morning be a joy and a delight for us. May it have lightened our load and refreshed us and satisfied us with the rich meat of your word so that we are resolved in this new year to serve you more fervently than ever before because you alone are worthy of all our love and affection. For we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. In our look at the crucifixion of the Son of God, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we have now discussed five of his seven sayings as he spoke them from the cross. In his first three hours, of agony, those daylight hours from nine in the morning until twelve noon, he had spoken words of forgiveness. And he spoke them over and over again. What were they? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That was given in the tense that tells us he said it repeatedly. He also had spoken gracious, wonderful words of salvation to a dying sinner to the repentant thief next to him on the cross. One minute had been cursing him along with the other thief, and the next minute he said, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And how did the Lord Jesus respond? Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. And then his third utterance from the cross dealt with his loving concern for a very special human relationship. He commended the care of his mother Mary into the hands of the beloved apostle John. And that's in verses 26 and 27 of John 19. You see, as always, instead of focusing on his own pain, you know, his physical pain, his mental pain, his emotional pain, the spiritual pain that he was about to be separated from, his, instead of focusing on himself, what was he doing? He was 
concerned about the needs of others. And we have seen this throughout his life. That's actually why he's hanging on the cross in the first place, isn't it? Because he's concerned about the needs of others. Well, the Lord's central cross saying, the center one of the seven, uh, which like the first and like the last was spoken directly to his father, to God, revealed for our sakes the deep spiritual anguish of his soul as he was separated for the first time in eternity from the special divine communion fellowship that he had had with his father. Without his words, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? In Matthew twenty-seven forty-six, you and I would not know that he truly was spiritually separated from God the Father. So, so that we would know with full assurance that he did indeed pay the full penalty of the wages of our sin. The full penalty was not only physical death, but it had to be spiritual death. We wouldn't know he had that separation if he had not said those words. He didn't say them because he didn't know the answer either, right? We looked in Psalm 22 and learned that he knew the answer to why God had to separate himself. It's because God is holy and he cannot look upon sin. And who literally became sin for us? Jesus. So he had to turn from him. Well, on the heels of that truth, the Lord's fifth saying from the cross was, you just discussed this in your groups, didn't you? I thirst. And that served to reveal to us the reality of his human physical suffering. We might not otherwise have known that human pain was a real part of his suffering, something that he actually did feel. We might not really know that we have a high priest who can indeed be touched with the feelings of our infirmities if he hadn't said, I thirst. Remember, he had denied that drug narcotic at the beginning that would have helped numb his awareness of all the horrific pain of crucifixion. Yet even having not taken that drug, he never winced. Even when they're hammering those long spikes into his hands and feet, he didn't even wince. Now, a word of complaint is recorded for us. So, you and I might have thought that maybe God, the Father, had somehow miraculously cauterized the body of his son, and he didn't actually suffer physically. Furthermore, his words, I thirst, demonstrated another aspect of the eternal hell that he experienced during those three eerie hours of darkness from 12 noon to 3 p.m., when it turned so dark that nobody could see their hand in front of their face. That's when he experienced hell in our place. And um, so really, more than a raging physical thirst, his thirst that he expressed was spiritual in nature. It was the unquenchable thirst of hell itself, the thirst of complete God-forsakenness. That's the thirst people will experience throughout eternity. And if you're born again and you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you will never have to experience that kind of physical, a spiritual thirst. Isn't that wonderful? However, there's yet another reason. Of course, this is the most important reason of all for why the Lord said, I thirst. And this is the one that highlights his omniscient deity. And this is the reason that was given for, to us in the scripture by John himself. In John 19, 28, he tells us why Jesus said, I thirst. He says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. See, with a mind as clear as crystal, the Lord Jesus knew full well that at the conclusion of his six hours on the cross, after having suffered, suffered an eternity of spiritual separation from God the Father, and he could suffer an eternity of separation from his Father because he himself is eternal life. And that's a deep mystery, but that's how it went. Um, and now he's just come out of that hell, just coming out of that three hours, because now it is exactly three o'clock and all these things he says happen right in succession, rapid succession. He knew that everything to that point in time, 3 p.m. on Passover day, that must spiritually be accomplished by the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of this world had now been accomplished. You know, his mind reviewed everything and he realized 
everything, all the pre-death messianic prophecies were fulfilled. Every one of them, except one. And so he said, I thirst in order to set in motion that one last fulfillment. So our Savior did not say, I thirst, so that someone would relieve his suffering. Why did he say, I thirst? To fulfill scripture. Absolutely. Oh, that's just magnificent. Man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. And boy, that was important in his life, wasn't it? So when he was offered the vinegar to drink, the final pre-death prophecy was accomplished. That's what we read in Psalm 6921b. One by one, the predictions of the prophets describing the birth, the life, the ministry, the suffering, and the death, and the resurrection. But we not get, we're going right up to the death. All of those concerning the, mess, the Messiah had been fulfilled. And they had been fulfilled to the most minute detail, hadn't they? I mean, real. some of them just amazed us how detailed they were. Let's review them really quickly, okay? This is going to be fun. This is why I don't want you to follow along. Just listen. <laughs> As Jehovah God had predicted way back in Genesis 3.15, the promised Messiah would be supernaturally born of a woman's seed. Women don't have seeds, so this is a miracle birth. Predicted, Genesis 3.15, right after the fall. Was this fulfilled in Jesus? Oh, yes, it was. Because he alone of the entire human race was born of a woman, it tells us in Galatians 4.4. Born only of a woman. Now, Isaiah came along many years later, and he clarified that Genesis 3.15 by saying that he was giving a king of Israel a, a sign. And he said... A woman, a virgin, shall conceive and have a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. Now, there's a lot of people that say the virgin birth isn't important. Well, it is important if Jesus is going to be God and sinless and not inherit the Adamic sin nature. But also, they will say that Isaiah 7:14 is just speaking about a woman, a young woman, having a baby. Now, if God is giving a sign to a nation about the coming Messiah, is he going to just say, okay, here's your sign. A young woman's going to have a baby? Big deal. Young women have babies all the time. No, a virgin. A woman who had never physically known a man. Now, that's a miracle, isn't it? Was going to have. Was that fulfilled in Jesus? Yes, it was. And it's very important that you do believe in the virgin birth. Prophecy also revealed that the Messiah would descend from Abraham and through Abraham and Isaac, his son, and then down through Jacob. And he would come from which tribe of Jacob? Sons, 12 sons, from the tribe of Judah. And that he would be in the direct lineage of King David, which was true of Jesus not only by way of his bloodline through his mother Mary, she descended right back to David, but also through the throne line, Back to David. You know, if there was a king in Israel, Jesus would qualify through his stepfather, Joseph. And did you know that Jesus is the only Jew alive today and since 70 AD who can prove his lineage all the way back to Abraham and even back to who? Adam? Why? Any Jew wanting to claim to be Messiah today can't prove he goes back to, to the, those, Abraham, Jacob, Judah, because all the temple records were destroyed in 70 AD. Isaiah 49.1 foretold that the Messiah would be named before his birth, which did indeed transpire in the account of Jesus, Luke 1.30. Micah 5.2 predicted the precise place of the Christ's birth. And where would it be? Bethlehem what? Ephrata, because there was more than one Bethlehem, very specific. Bethlehem Ephrata of Judah, of Judea, the southern province. Jeremiah 31, uh, 15 predicted the sorrow of the people of Bethlehem who lost their young male children, babies, in Herod's horrible slaughter of the innocents. Hosea 11, 1 
predicted that the Messiah, just like Israel in the wilderness, would come out of Egypt. Did Jesus come out of Egypt? Yes, he did, because he went over there for a couple of years to be protected from Herod. Um, but Isaiah 11.1 1 stated that he would be a Nazarene. Now, where is Nazareth? It's north in Galilee, the province of Galilee. So can you understand why Old Testament people scratched their heads and said, this is so confusing. We don't get it. How can he be born in Bethlehem of Judea in the south, come out of Egypt? Doesn't that sound like he'd be an Egyptian? And yet an Egyptian can't come from Abraham. And yet it says he's going to be from Nazareth of Galilee. How do those three meet in one person? Well, we know because we have the advantage of hindsight, don't we? And Jesus fulfilled all of them. And then, too, there was the Isaiah prophecy already mentioned that he would be called Emmanuel. What does that mean? God with us. God with us. And it predicted that wise men from the east would come and visit him and bear gifts for him. All these prophecies, and there's more. These are just a sampling only concern his birth. These are prophecies regarding his birth. There were numerous other Old Testament prophecies regarding his ministry, the ministry of the coming Christ. How would you know him when he came, Israel? Well, first of all, his ministry would be preceded by the ministry of a voice crying in the wilderness, a herald of the Messiah who would say, prepare, you know, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand because the king is coming right behind me. And who is the one who pointed his finger and said, Behold, the Lamb of God which cometh to take away the sins of the world. It was fulfilled in John the Baptist. Old Testament scriptures also foretold that the Messiah would be able to open the eyes of the blind. He even opened the eyes of a man who had been born blind. He was able to cause the lame to leap. He was able to unstop the ears of the deaf. And he was able to open the, the mouths of the mute so they can talk and sing and praise him. We, you know, never were his miracles denied by anyone. Now, the religious rulers attributed him to Beelzebub, Satan, but they never denied he had power over every realm of life and even death. He could even raise the dead. They knew that. That's why they hated him and killed him. Because it was willful rejection, wasn't it? on the part especially of the religious rulers. He had, he had power and authority over Satan's realm because he could exercise demons out of people. He could do it all, cleanse the leper. Amazing. And he went throughout Israel demonstrating his miraculous messianic authority over every single realm of life. Then, I love this one. It says in um, Malachi 3, verses 1 to 3. All right, now, God gave Israel a lot of ways she could recognize her Messiah when he came. But this one to me is just wonderful. She said, he said that they would know their Messiah because when he came, he would come suddenly to his temple. And what would he do? It says that he would cleanse it like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. When was the first time Israel really knew that there was this guy named Jesus that was amazing was when he went suddenly to Jerusalem, went straight to the temple, made a cord of uh, a whip of cords and cleansed it like fuller's soap. And that was predicted. And they missed it, didn't they? That's not what they wanted. They were making money on the temple business, weren't they? They didn't like that. They'd rather have him jump from the pinnacle of the temple and be caught by angels and tempt the Lord and all that kind of stuff. Also, Psalm 78, too, said that he would speak in parables. Did our Lord Jesus speak in parables? Yes, wonderful parables. Psalm 107, 29 said that he would have the power to, to calm the tempest storm. And boy, he did. Just the word of his mouth, peace be still. Several times he calmed storms. So he had power even over nature. Well, of course, if you're the creator, you can have a fish catch a coin in its mouth and pay the taxes, right? I mean, he's the creator. They, every, everybody in his creation obeys him except man. Then Isaiah 42 verses 1 to 3 said that he would deal gently with Gentiles, and he did. And it says that he would be a light unto the Gentiles. And it was amazing how Gentiles seemed to accept him more readily in many cases than his own people, the Jews. 
Psalm 69.9 said that he would have a zeal for his father's house, and he did. Zechariah 9.9 said that he would present himself officially to Israel as her Messiah when he would come riding into Jerusalem on what? On the colt of a donkey. And Daniel 9.26 gave us the very precise day that that would happen. To the very day. To the very, they could have calculated it. To the very day. But they missed it, some of them purposely. But Jesus fulfilled every single one of these prophecies. And I'm only giving you a sampling of the many that God gave through his prophets so that Israel would know. She would recognize. She would have no doubt about it. She would acknowledge. She would receive and she would believe in him when he showed up. And then what was she to do? Where is Israel located? In the belly button of the land masses of this earth, right there in dead center. She was then to spread the news about the Savior of the world to the rest of the world. Did she do it? No, she wound up nailing him to a cross. If it was not for the fulfillment of Old Testament scriptures, prophecies in the scriptures, you know, you and I today would not have the assurance that Jesus is indeed who he claimed to be. There are over 400 prophecies concerning the life and ministry of God's son. Now, I know in your book we'll say prophecy fulfillments, such and such, 40 or, you know, I don't know how many we got up to, but we didn't get every little tiny one of them. There are over 400 when you get into all the types and everything. And many hundreds of them were fulfilled in his first coming. Do you think all the remaining ones regarding his second coming are going to be fulfilled? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And soon, too. But he did, God didn't do this. God didn't give all these prophecies, you know, scattered throughout the Old Testament, some of them uh, mysteries. And, you know, like I said, they're scratching their head and they couldn't figure them out. We, we have a great advantage to figure a lot of them out. Even still, some of them are hidden to us. Some of them we just saw in these past few years, didn't we? We said, that's been in there all along and never saw it before. But God didn't give us all these prophecies so that um, it would keep our attention and that we would get, you know, um, uh, excited, kind of like prophecy. Some people are prophecy bugs, you know. They just, they just like to study prophecy for the sake of their own little thrills and chills. He didn't give them to us so that it would be like putting together a puzzle and we'd have fun doing it. There's much deeper reason for it. And this is where I want you to turn to Isaiah. Would you turn to Isaiah 46, please? Isaiah 46. And look at verses 9 and 10. If you don't have these highlighted in your Bible, you should. This is a very, very important passage because it gives us God's purpose in prophecy and it tells us about his providence. Is God sovereign? Is he in control of everything? Yes, so this is good passage for God's prophecy, reason for it, and God's providence. Let's look at uh, verse 9. God says, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. What's that? Prophecy. Predicting ahead of time, the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, the things that are not yet done. That's prophecy. And here comes the providence, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. That's saying, what I say is going to happen, is going to happen. I'm in control. This is my, my sovereignty. Providence. And then look at the end of verse 11. I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. God tells us here in Isaiah that we, because he gives us many, many prophecies, not only prophecies about the coming Messiah, but other prophecies about what nation would defeat what nation and all kinds of little details. He gives those things to us so that we would know that the author of this book is who? Him. He is the author of Scripture. It wasn't a bunch of 40 different men getting together over 1,600 years and, and, you know, a conspiracy theory and putting this thing together. Only God could know the end from the beginning and have over 400 prophecies about Christ come to pass exactly as he said. You know, 
They're so incredibly accurate, and there is never an error in any of them. Could anybody else ever make those kind of predictions and have them all come true? Now, somebody once in a while might predict something in the future and it comes to pass, and then they say, oh, you know, he's a prophet. But every single one of many hundreds and even thousands accurately into the very detail and never one mistake. God says, if I made one mistake, I'm not God. But he didn't. So he gave these to us so that we would know that the author is the great I am, the one and only true God, and that his son is indeed the Messiah and our Savior. There are also, of course, many prophecies regarding the Lord's final suffering and his death. There were Old Testament prophecies regarding his rejection. There were prophecies regarding his betrayal by a friend, uh, his false accusers, his mockery, his scourging, his being spat upon, the piercing of his hands and feet, being numbered with transgressors, making intercession for transgressors, and bearing the sin of transgressors, and the parting of his garments. Remember that? Parting of his garments and yet the casting of lots for his singular vesture. Very specific. Was that fulfilled in Jesus? Yes, as he was on the cross and they were doing that for his clothing. All of these and many more, such as that the stone that the builders would refuse would become the chief cornerstone. Uh, that he would be the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. That he would be despised that he would not be esteemed, he'd be esteemed not, he'd be smitten of God. I'm sure that one really bothered them, didn't it? I could our Messiah be smitten by God. And I loved this one, that he would actually see the seed of his redemption work while he was in the very process of making his soul an offering for sin. Did that happen? And who was the seed, the fruit of his redemption work that he got to see? The thief on the cross. So now we've come to the point in our life Christ study after 11 or 12 years where even the last pre-death prophecy was fulfilled. The offer of the drink of vinegar in his thirst. Now, the offer of the drink of vinegar mixed with myrrh at the beginning of the crucifixion didn't qualify to fulfill this last part of Psalm 69, 21 when he said, in my thirst... They gave me vinegar to drink. Because when they offered him that first one, he wasn't thirsty, was he? So this had to be fulfilled. And so he set in motion, you know, with the words so that it would be fulfilled. Did you know that there are some 30 prophecies fulfilled just in the Lord's death? Just in his death. A man named Peter Stoner wrote a book called Science Speaks. And he worked out the mathematical statistics of just eight, just eight of those 30 prophecies regarding the Lord's death being fulfilled in one man. And we're just speaking of eight out of 30, and we're just talking about his death. Now, just can imagine what the statistic would be if we talked about all the prophecies that were fulfilled in Christ. Okay, but we're just narrowing it down to prophecies regarding his death. And Mr. Stoner said that the odds were one possibility in one with 17 zeros behind it. And I can't tell you what the number is because I don't know. I know what a million looks like. I know what a billion looks like. Not that I've ever had that much, but I know what the number looks like. I know that after a billion comes a trillion. I know that because of the debt of our nation. Um, I think a zillion comes after a trillion, does it? Do we have any math, mathematicians in here? I think it's a, a million, then a billion, then a trillion, then a zillion, or is that just made up word, zillion? I don't know. But I don't know what comes after a zillion, do you? But this is even beyond a zillion, whatever it is. It's a one with 17 zeros. Mr. Stoner, and that just, I can't, you know, I can't wrap my mind around that, but Mr. Stoner said that it would be like filling the state of Texas. You know, Texas is big. It's a big state. Be like filling the state of Texas with silver dollars two feet deep. Like up to your knees. Is that two feet? I don't know. It is mine. But <laughs> Some of you it's a little less, but two feet deep, silver dollars, and putting a little mark on just one of them. 
okay? And giving one person one chance to pick that silver dollar out of the state of Texas, two feet deep. I mean, it's like impossible. <laughs> and that's the odds of just eight prophecies being fulfilled in one man. But the Lord Jesus fulfilled every single one of not only the death prophecies, but every first coming messianic prophecy of Old Testament scriptures. And then, I mean, we'd, we'd just been talking about the specific written prophecies, like he would be born in Bethlehem, Ephrata. That's specific, right? Um, that he would come from the line of Abraham and David and all those. But there were also many, many um, Old Testament prophetic event types, events that pictured the Messiah and his person and his work. There were, for example, the pictures of his coming redemption work, like the sin covering that God provided for Adam and Eve right after the fall. And to provide that covering, he had to shed the blood of an innocent animal so that he could, you know, cover them with the coats of that animal. That necessitated the shedding of blood. And that was now fully provided. That event type picture was fully fulfilled by Christ's shed blood and his finished work on the cross. You know, if you've ever done a study of the tabernacle or the temple, that much of the tabernacle, I mean, even including the color of the, the, the curtains and the veils and the, the cherubim and all the furniture and everything about the tabernacle and the priest's elaborate rituals and even the priest's garments, everything, all the details and all the details concerning that special day of atonement, Yom Kippur, and all the various sacrifices to be offered. Did you ever wonder why they had to offer so many sacrifices? There was the burnt offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, you know, the meal offering. Why? Why all those different offerings? Well, because they all pointed to who? To Jesus Christ. The burnt offering pointed to his willing sacrifice of himself. The peace offering pointed to his work on the cross where he would make peace between God and man. The sin offering pointed to his dealing with sin on the cross. The meal offering spoke of his perfection. There was not to be any leaven. You know, in the meal offering, and he was sinless. All of it, all of it is now accomplished in Christ's work on the cross. That more excellent sacrifice that it speaks of in Hebrews 11.4, typified by Abel's lamb, had now been offered. You know, Abel got it right, didn't he? He sacrificed a lamb, so he shed the blood of a sinless animal. Cain got it wrong. He tried to do it by his own works, didn't he? fruit of his own labor. The shelter, Psalm 61.3, from God's wrath and judgment, pictured by Noah's ark of safety and its one door, was now provided in Christ. You ever wonder why Noah's ark only had one door? Why? To show that there would only be one way into the safety from God's wrath and judgment against sin. There could have been many doors, many ways to God, to safety, but there's only one because Jesus Christ is the way. He is the door. He is the truth. No man comes to the Father but by him, right? One way. It's narrow? Yeah, but that's God's way. The only beloved son typified by Abraham's willing offering of his son Isaac had now been slain upon the altar. Protection from the angel of death upon all firstborns attained by the blood of the Passover lambs on the lintels of the doors of those who believe was now also provided so that all people could be safe from the angel of death by not being firstborns anymore only, but by becoming secondborns, born again, thereby avoiding the judgment of the second death. The cure... From the bite of the old serpent, typified by the brazen serpent lifted up on a pole in the wilderness, was now provided for all sinners. The life-giving water that was symbolically, prophetically typified by the water that, that sprung out from that smitten rock. Remember that? When Moses struck the rock, but he, he ruined the picture that God was trying to provide of his son. Why? He, he, in his anger, he smote the rock twice. Who did the rock picture? Christ, when he was smitten, what came out of him? Living water, so none of us ever have to thirst. 
But Moses ruined the picture because he smote, him tw- smote the rock twice. And Jesus Christ died once, once for all. He was only smitten once. Furthermore, and all these are not, they're all now fulfilled, okay? Furthermore, there was the fulfillment of the prophetic types of many Old Testament characters, figures, true people that pictured in different ways Jesus Christ, beginning with Abel, of course, Adam, you know, first Adam, Jesus is second Adam, but then Abel. Abel pictured Christ because he was murdered by his own brother, wasn't he? Cain. Jesus was murdered by his own brethren, the Jews. Isaac is a picture of Christ. Isaac, the beloved son of his father, who pictured Christ in his willingness to be sacrificed. Isaac was about 33, probably. He was stronger than his old dad. His dad was old and feeble by then. He didn't have to willingly lay himself down on that altar, did he? But he did. That's a picture of Christ laying down his life for us. Joseph. Oh, boy, Joseph. The most perfect picture of Jesus we have in the Old Testament. His whole life is a picture of Jesus. This is amazing. Maybe one day we'll study the life of Joseph because we, we studied Genesis and we stopped with Joseph. Because I thought, oh, there's a lot of people who've studied his life, but maybe we'll get back to that one day and study the life of Joseph. But Joseph was hated without a cause, wasn't he? He was hated without a cause by his own brothers, just like Jesus. Uh, he was ridiculed. He was plotted against. He was stripped of his robe. He was sold for pieces of silver. He was lied about. He was placed in captivity with two guilty men. He was um, thought dead by his brothers. The Jews think Jesus is dead. And basically, you know, he resurrected from the dead and went to sit at the right hand of Pharaoh. He also married a Gentile. Did you know that? Joseph married a Gentile. Who has Jesus married? Basically, a Gentile bride, the church. Um, He was, uh, when he came out from the dead, so to speak, He became the provider of the bread of life for the whole world, a world that was in famine. He remained unrecognized by his own for many years. But what finally happened at the end? Don't you love that scene when his brothers are around him and he finally reveals who he is and they fall down and it's just a wonderful scene? That's going to happen one day. Israel is going to finally recognize the one she thought she killed and has been long dead. And she's going to embrace him, and there's going to be a, just a wonderful reunion, just like that scene in, in uh, the book of Genesis regarding Joseph and his brothers. Of course, Jesus is also a high priest after the order of that mysterious character named Melchizedek. And then he is also the second Aaron, uh, who would actually bring about reconciliation between God and a sinful world. Jonah is a picture of Christ in his death in the whale for three days and three nights and his miraculous resurrection. David, of course, can't leave out David, can you? David is a picture of Christ in his rejection and in his betrayal by a familiar friend and in many other ways also in David's life. All of these, and I'm not giving you again all of them because there's so many. Samson and his strength, I mean, you could go on and on. But all of them are character pictures of Christ, and they are all now fulfilled. And that's just the Old Testament. Then in the New Testament, John the Baptist's words of John 1.29 had foretold of the slaying of the Lamb. Because when he said, Behold the Lamb of God which cometh to take away the sins of the world, how was the Lamb going to take away the sins of the world? A Lamb? That was predicting the slaying of Jesus. And he identified the lamb, didn't he? He's the first one who did, and he identified him as Jesus. Then the Lord himself in John chapter 2, that was John chapter 1, and in John chapter 2, the Lord spoke of his death in terms of the destruction of the temple. Remember? Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. John chapter 3, he spoke again of his death, this time to a Pharisee named Nicodemus, and he compared it to the lifting up of the serpent in the wilderness. John chapter 6, he spoke of giving his flesh for the life of the world, the bread of life sermon. 
you know, and they didn't like that. Most of his disciples left him and walked away. What's he talking about? Being a cannibal, drinking his blood and eating his flesh. Of course, he's talking symbolically, but he's speaking about his death, giving his life and his blood for the life of the world. Then John chapter 10, the good shepherd sermon. He said that the good shepherd would lay down his life for the sheep. John 12, 24, he spoke of his death in terms of planting a corn of wheat into the ground. And on and on we could go. The Lord Jesus predicted many of his own prophecies, didn't he, that were fulfilled in him. He is both the author and the finisher, the fulfiller of our faith. And he could now, after six hours on the cross, he could look with calm, precise, divine vision through the entire record of his human life to this very moment at 3 p.m. on Passover day and know that every single prophecy prior to his actual death had now been fulfilled. And therefore, in a loud voice, he cried out, It is finished. And in Greek, that's one word. Te telestai. Look at the first half of John 19.30. Flip over to John. I think you're still in Isaiah. Because that is our text. It says, John 19.30, just the first part. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, his sixth saying from the cross, It is finished. John's the only one who gives us this sixth saying. Isn't that interesting? How many trials did he go through? Six. Who was he dying for? Man. What's man's number? Six. Six is man's number. Just short of perfect seven. (laughs) We all fall short, don't we? Um, So he had six trials he went through. How many hours did he hang on the cross to complete the work for man? What saying from the cross did he say it is finished, his work for man? Six. You think that's just coinkydink? No, nothing is coincidence in the Bible. Um, So John's the only one who gives us this six saying, but all three of the synoptic gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell us that he said it in a loud voice. Matthew says again in a loud voice, which tells us we knew that he said another saying in a loud voice. What was that one? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So this is the second time in a loud voice that he speaks a cross saying. That impressed everyone there. Because think of six hours after being crucified, hardly anybody could even breathe anymore. So they were impressed that he had this kind of power to speak loudly, like a roaring lion, these things. It got their attention, I'm sure. So after the vinegar drink came the victory declaration. After the vinegar drink came the victory declaration. It was not a cry of despair at all from a dying, hopeless martyr. People will try to tell us all kinds of crazy things like that. Nor was it the final gasp of a self-deceived phony. It was not the tragic finale of a good man a good man who somehow just got himself into more trouble than he had anticipated with the stubborn religionists of his day. Of his day, That's not what it was. His words, it is finished, were not the tragic cry of a victim at all. This was the cry of a victor. He didn't say, I am finished, did he? He said, it is finished. Actually, Christ is just beginning I mean, he's, he's forever and ever. There is no finish to him. He's eternal. There were a lot of works he was just going to be beginning. He wasn't finished. It was finished. What, therefore, is the it? That's what we need to understand. His work. His work was finished. This was the triumphant shout of a victor. It's the announcement to the kingdom of darkness of its complete overthrow. Satan, it's finished. You know, I got to thinking, it says in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the, of the serpent, right? Fatal blow. I thought, he crushed the serpent's skull at the place of the skull. Hmm. 
at the very moment. Now, can you imagine how his disciples are feeling? They don't get all this yet. They don't understand the victory cry. They, to them, it's all despair. It's, it's lost and hopeless. The one they had looked to was just about to die. But his words really declare that, no, it's not all despair and hopelessness. It's won. It's been won. The victory has been won and everything has been accomplished. It's the announcement to the race of Adam, which has been under the curse, that the commencement of a free rest that will never come to end, an end has begun. In the words, it is finished, we hear the clanking chains of bondage burst loose. We hear the prison walls fall down. Were you once in bondage and chains and in prison? I was to my own sin. This was the definitive proclamation from the lips of the eternal Son of God to the entire world of his creation that absolutely everything he had come to earth as incarnate man to do was completed. It was accomplished. It was fulfilled. It was done. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Glory and honor and wisdom and blessing and strength and power and dominion to him forever and ever. And God's people said, Amen. It is finished. I always thought I wanted to be on the road to Emmaus and hear how he expanded himself from Moses on down. But I think I've changed my mind. I would have liked to have been there when he said, Tay, tell us die, with my understanding today. <laughs> if I'd been there like the disciples, I would have been, <laughs> Now, in the Greek, the words, it is finished, literally mean, it is finished, it stands finished, and it always will be finished. The root word is the word teleo. And it can be translated and is translated many ways in the New Testament. It can be translated as to make an end, as when it says in Matthew 11, 1, when Jesus had made an end of commanding his 12 disciples. It can also speak of payment, such as in Matthew 17, 24, doth not your master pay tribute to Caesar? Same word, same root word, teleo. It also can be translated as performed, such as in Luke 2.39, and when they had performed all things according to the law. And it can be uh, translated as the word accomplished. It says in Luke 18.31, all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. Okay, so when we put all those different translations together, all the various meanings of that one Greek word, tetelestai, we get a, a better scope, a fuller scope of the Lord's sixth cross saying. We learn that he was not only saying it is finished, he was also victoriously proclaiming it is made an end of. It is paid in full. It is perfect. It is accomplished. The power of sin and death over us is made an end of. That's good news. You know, those are Satan's greatest tools. The fear of of, of death, the sting of the grave, sin. That's made an end of. We don't have to fear death anymore, do we? It's taken the sting out of the grave. The full payment of man's redemption is made. The full requirement of the law has been performed. The work God the Father gave God the Son to accomplish has been accomplished. His revelation of his Father's person. Who revealed to us the character and person of God? The Father. God the Son. That revelation is done. All the messianic prophecies and types and pictures concerning Christ's first coming and his passion and his death are all fulfilled. His sufferings are finished. You know, the lifelong anguish of the God-man knowing about his future suffering He'd known that all along, hadn't he? What awaited him. All that had come to an end. Evil men and the satanic realm had done their very worst to him. Their combined worst. God himself had bruised him. It pleased God to bruise him. The cup of suffering had been drained to its very dregs. The sword of heaven's justice had now been sheathed. It's finished. Never, ever, ever again will Christ permit himself to be tempted by the evils of Satan. 
Never ever again will he willingly submit himself to the injustice and the evil tortures of sinful men. Never again will the light of his father's presence be removed from him. All that suffering that he went through for our sake is finished. It's over. Next time he appears, it will not be as a lamb. It will be as a lion, a roaring lion with justice in the word of his mouth. And I cannot wait till this world is reigned by that lion. Can you? And justice and peace are finally part of this world. But the central thing, the central thing that the Lord's sixth cross saying referred to was the accomplishment of the atonement. I've given you all the other things that were ended, but the atonement is the most important of all. The entire, his entire life of obedience to his father's will was an obedience that led up to the atonement. You see, the Lamb of God who would qualify to take away the sins of the world had to be perfect, didn't he? He had to be without blemish, without spot. Not one single sin, one little bad attitude would have disqualified him. So the perfect life of obedience qualified Jesus for the atonement. Now, what does atonement mean? Well, atonement is a word that speaks of bringing us in a position of oneness with God. Sin has broken our oneness with God. We're out of fellowship. We're not one with God when we're still in our sin and we haven't been born again. Atonement, you could say, at one mint. It brings us back into a right relationship with God. The cross, you see, was not the payment for Jesus' sins, was it? It was the payment for our sins. Our sins were laid on him. Our guilt was laid on him. The wrath of God burned itself out on him instead of on us. And you know what? That is the best news you will ever hear. That is the greatest news there is to give to you. That is the good news. Why do you think the gospel is called good news? It actually should be called great news. Greatest news. Christ died in our place. He made it possible for us to have oneness with God. Direct access and fellowship with God and to spend eternity in his presence. But you know, the sad thing about that is that men are very seldom satisfied with that truth, that good news, that great news. Men don't really run to embrace that truth, do they? And how do we know this? Well, because there's a lot of unsaved people out there. We also know it, for one thing, because of the vast existence of priests of every kind. You didn't expect I would say that, did you? <laughs> Shocked you. But there are. have you ever looked around this world? This world is chock full of priests. Millions. Millions of priests. There are priests in Hinduism. There are priests in Shintoism. There are priests in Buddhism. There are priests in Anglicanism. There are priests in Catholicism. There are priests in Greek Orthodox and Eastern Orthodoxism. <laughs> there are priests in many primal tribal religions. There are mullahs and there are imams. There are priests in Satanism. Priests literally by the millions. Why? Why all these priests? Well, because a common element of man is the realization that he is not fit to appear in the presence of God or the gods of his making, the gods of his imagination. You see, man knows he does fall short. Uh, he needs a mediator. He thinks, you know, he needs a mediator. Of course, he does, and that one mediator is Christ. But common element of man is that he has, needs a mediator, someone to represent him before God, or before the makings of his God, and to represent him to God. And represent that mediator represents God to him. That's the common element behind all priestcraft. That's why the world is full of priests. However, 
The fact is that there was only one priesthood prescribed by God. Other than, you know, the high priesthood, which was his position of one man, you know, the ironic. But I am talking here about the Levitical priesthood of the Old Testament. All the rest of the priests are fabricated. They are, and all the rituals of the priests that they, that they go through, all of those are non-biblical, other than the Levitical, which was only good for the Old Testament. If we're talking today, it's even non-biblical. It's been done away with. Um, all the other priests, non-biblical, extra-biblical, even anti-biblical. They are not prescribed in the Bible. There was only one priesthood prescribed by God and one set of priests divinely ordained by God. And those Levitical priests never, ever accomplished atonement. They never accomplished the full making of sinners to be one with a holy God. Will you turn to Hebrews in the New Testament? Hebrews chapter 10. Now, Hebrews is a New Testament book written to the Jewish people, right? To Hebrews, the Jewish people, the one people on earth who actually had a divinely ordained priesthood. They're the only ones who were allowed to have a priesthood. Okay? Look at Hebrews 10.1. We read these words. For the law having a shadow. A shadow is not a reality, right? having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image, not the reality of the things to come, the law can never, with those sacrifices, and who offered the sacrifices? The priests. Can never, with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually, make the comers thereunto perfect. What does that mean? Well, the worshipers, the people who brought their sacrifices to the priest to be offered, those worshipers, those comers, were never made perfect. They were never atoned for. They never had a oneness with God. That's why there was never a single Old Testament saint who was in the presence of God before the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They're all in a holding pattern in paradise section of Hades, waiting for the atonement when they could... You know, even you think of Elijah and um, in a whirlwind and chariot and, and the other one that Enoch. Yeah, they went. They didn't go into the presence of God. They went to paradise, Abraham's bosom. No one before the actual atonement was in God's presence. Might shock you, but that's true. None of them could ever be made perfect. Look at verse two. For then would they not have ceased to be offered if the people could have been made perfect, made one with God? They wouldn't have to continually offer the sacrifices because that the worshipers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. But did they? Yes, they continued to have a conscience of sin because they weren't made one with God. It says in verse 3, but in those sacrifices there was a remembrance again made of sins every year. That's why they had to continually keep offering sacrifices to atone, to cover, to not atone, but to cover their sins. I'll talk about that in a minute. Look at verse 4. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. You know, the blood, all of the blood of animal sacrifices, all the way back to Adam and Eve and Abel, all they did, that blood was used to cover sins. Cover sins. The blood of animals could not remove sins, could not cleanse sin and make us white as snow. This is going to be a silly example, but I'm going to give you a little illustration. It's like when my little dachshund, Dino, has an accident on the floor. Now, he doesn't have him hardly ever unless it's our fault and he's in the house too long and we don't have, you know, we don't let him out or I'm gone all day or something. And if my husband happens to be the first one to find that little accident, do you know what Frank does? Yeah, you got a husband too, don't you? He just covers it with a paper towel. Why does he do that? So that I will see it easily and readily. When I see it, I will actually cleanse the boo-boo and disinfect the area. 
right? You're all women. You are nodding. You understand. My husband only covers the boo-boo. I come along and cleanse it. You get it? That's the difference. (laughs) And what we're talking about here, the Old Testament sacrifices were simply shadows of the good thing to come. Those animal sacrifices never made the worshipers perfect. You see, sin is too deep of a dye, D-Y-E, and the blood of an animal has no potency to perfectly cleanse when you're talking about human sin. But one thing that the sacrificed blood of the animals did do was to testify to God that the worshiper fully accepted God's way of doing things. You know, that's why Abel got it right. He might not have understood, but he did it God's way, didn't he? He shed the blood of an innocent animal to cover his sins, whereas Cain didn't do it God's way. And that's what man has been doing ever since, you know, his own way instead of just trusting God's way. But it showed God that that person, that worshiper, accepted in faith God's method of providing salvation through the shedding of an innocent blood sacrifice. The sacrificed animal demonstrated the faith of the worshiper, but the blood of the bulls and goats never satisfied the justice of a holy God. That is why every priest stood daily, look at verse 11, offering the same sacrifices that could never take away sins. What did the priests do? They stood daily. Those poor priests, what an awful job. Slaughtering one animal after another, never getting to sit down. You know, if you study the tabernacle or the temple, guess what is conspicuously absent? A chair. They never got to sit down. But then, hmm, I love this. You see what they were doing? They were just putting paper towels. One paper towel after another paper towel after another paper. They were never cleansing sin. But look at verse 12. I underline this. But this man, who? Jesus. After he had offered one sacrifice for the sins, for, for sins forever, what did he do? Sat down. Why? Why did he get to sit down at the right hand of God the Father? Because it's finished. It's over. Te telestai. The centrality of the reference of his words, it is finished, is to the atonement. No more priests. Even the one prescribed priesthood of the Levites is finished. Over with. Everything they pointed to is done, accomplished. No more priests, no more sacrifices, no more incense, no more animal blood, no more temple altars, candles, vestments, no more shadows that all together were used to attempt to illustrate the richness and the fullness of what Jesus would do on his, in his body on the cross. He made a once-for-all atonement for the sins of every person who has ever lived and who ever will live. I do not at all believe in limited atonement. He died for the sins of the whole world. And when he cried out in his sixth saying from the cross, Te Telestai, it was an accomplishment. It was a victory shout. The the old Puritan John Flavel said this. He said, There can be an ocean of meaning in a drop of language. And boy, oh boy, is that what we have in this one word, tetelestai. An ocean of meaning in a drop of language. A more honorable, a more important, a more difficult task has never been entrusted to anyone, angel or human. In fact, did you know that no mere angel could have been our sacrifice for sins? Why not an angel? Why not Gabriel? Why not Michael? Why couldn't they have come down and died for our sins? Well, number one, an angel cannot die. They're immortal. How could an angel shed its blood for our sins? Can't. They don't have blood. Angels are spirit beings. They can't die. They don't have blood. Also, They're a separate creation from mankind. No angel can leave its kind, you know, after its own kind. It can't become, an angel can't become a man and become our kinsman redeemer and die in our place and shed his blood. Impossible. Why could no human 
have been our sacrifice. Exactly. Every human inherits the Adamic sin nature. So every human ever born other than Jesus disqualifies from the very beginning because of his sin nature. Why couldn't an animal, let's say the king of the jungle, why couldn't a lion come and offer himself? Well, one thing, he wouldn't do it willingly because he wouldn't know what he was doing. <laughs> they don't have a conscience. I mean, they can't think about God, right? It wouldn't be a willing thing. They don't have a soul. And also, an animal is after its own kind. So an animal cannot change, despite what the evolutionists say, he cannot, over years, become a man. It had to be the only one, the God-man. God could become man. He did become man. And he came through a virgin. Therefore, he didn't inherit the Adamic sin nature. And he could qualify to be our kinsman redeemer. You see how perfect it was? And why there was only one in the whole universe who could qualify? And it was Jesus Christ. Upon that rugged cross, the Son of Man, the Son of God, finished the work of atonement. And do you know what this means? Listen to me. This means that there is absolutely nothing left for the sinner to do. No works can be added as the price of our salvation or to keep our salvation. There are a lot of people in this world who are in bondage thinking that they have to keep their own salvation. Well, when Jesus died, he died for all your sins. Future yet. It was back then. He died for all of them. There's no way that, you know, it goes back to a work system when, when it's once for all. He died once for all of your sins. Get that. Abide in that. Rest in that. There is nothing you can do to keep yourself sin. And if you believe that, not only is it vanity, but that's sin. Because you're not fully trusting in the completed work of Christ. Who said, it is finished. He did it all. That's why we can abide in him. And that's why we can enjoy, enjoy your salvation, would you? All right, let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for our Savior. And to the one from whom all blessings flow, we say thank you. Thank you for the finished work on Calvary. Thank you for the perfect Lamb of God who willingly accomplished the atonement work for us because we never could and no one else ever could. Thank you for the grace that draws us to yourself and without which no one would come to thee. We ask that you would bring the lost to the foot of the cross to look up and see the suffering of your son and the shedding of his blood and to recognize, Father, that he finished all the work needful to make a way for us to enter into your holy presence. We do pray for those that we know and love and who are in our inner circles of, of influence, Lord, we pray that you would draw them to yourself, that they would wake up and, and acknowledge you before it is eternally too late. Lord, we love you. We pray that this new year we would serve you more faithfully, more fervently than ever before, because we know and trust that your second coming is at hand. We love you and we pray all these things, Jesus, in your blessed name. Amen.